This is Scott Becker with Becker Group Business Leadership. Today's topic is private equity funds, and we're going to talk about two issues, portfolio companies and what should they be doing now and what advice our panelists have for them. And then second, what does mergers and acquisitions look like the next you know, period of time, the next six to 12 to 18 months? We've got three great panelists today. In a moment, I'll let them introduce themselves further. Uh, all with McGuire Woods. McGuire Woods is a thousand person or so law firm, uh, one of the largest firms in the United States. We've got three people that focus a lot in private equity and in healthcare. Bart Walker, who heads up the healthcare group and private equity work in the Charlotte office. Holly Buckley, who heads up the firm's Cheers, co-chairs with David Pivnik, the firm's life sciences and healthcare uh, group, and then Christian Berger, who is sort of a business development connector, extraordinaire, and, and a leader in the private equity field. Thrilled to have each with us today. I'll start with Bart, ask you to take a moment and introduce yourself, then Holly, then Christian. Two other quick notes. At any time today, if you want to submit a question, please do so on screen. Um, if you don't have a screen up, feel free to text Scott Becker at 312-399-0774, and I'll make sure we get your questions to our panelist. That's 312-399-0774 for text. And our producer, Jeremy Core with Executive Podcasting, uh, if you ever need somebody great for podcasting work, Jeremy Core and his team are fantastic. Bart, let me start with you. Quick introduction. Sure. Thanks, Scott. Uh, my name is Bart Walker. As Scott mentioned, I'm a partner with the healthcare uh, group at McGuire Woods. Um, I've been working on healthcare services for, gosh, uh, 15 years now, 16 years. And I'd say about 80% of practice is M&A of some shape or form, all in the healthcare service space. So that means physician practices, surgery centers, hospitals, and so forth. Um, Recently, we've been helping our clients more with things like employment issues, um, SBA loans, stimulus programs, practice issues across state lines, COVID testing. Um, so we, we've seen kind of our practice shift in that direction more recently. Great. Then we'll talk about issues that transition to healthcare and not healthcare today. Holly Buckley, can you introduce yourself? Sure, and thank you to, to Scott and Jeremy for having me here today. Um, similar to Bart, I'm a healthcare transactional and regulatory attorney, um, working with investors and platforms on on deals and making sure those deals are done in a manner compliant with healthcare laws. And uh, similarly, have been spending a lot of time in the last uh, six weeks or so on COVID-related counseling, um, uh, generally on a, a different topic each week as the world, world evolves to uh, adjust to the new normal. Thank you. And Christian, if you don't mind introducing yourself. Sure. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for having me and great to be with you and, and Holly and Bart. Um, uh, my title is Senior Advisor of Strategic Business Development and my job is to find clients that buy companies valued between $30 million and $500 million. McGuire Woods, as you mentioned, is a big law firm. Last year, we closed 353 M&A transactions across the firm at an average enterprise value of $120 million. Uh, I, focus, I, I focus specifically on uh, financial investors, including private equity funds, 
diversified asset managers and and uh, and others who are uh, acting as financial investors in majority and minority non-control investments uh, in in middle market and lower middle market companies. Great, and Holly, let me start with you. All three of you do most of your work one or another with private equity funds and then with providers that they've invested in, provider chains, other kinds of businesses, and so forth. Holly, what do you see the portfolio companies doing right now? Have they gotten over the fear of going bankrupt from COVID-19? Are they still worried about that? What are you sort of seeing in terms of companies that private equity funds have invested in and what they're doing now? Yeah, so I, I don't know that anyone is is over the fear of what is happening right now. And I think um, that's certainly motivating um, folks to get their businesses open as soon as possible um, in a safe way, of course. And I think that's really what we're focusing on and seeing a lot of focus on in the, in the last week or so. It's the preparing to and actually reopening as different states are starting to relax some of their orders around elective surgeries and staying at home. It's how do we get the workforce back? Um, how do we start to make uh, adjustments to our normal processes so that we can get patients in the door and get them through safely? Um, what do we need to change? What, to what extent do we continue with telemedicine where it's appropriate and necessary to do so? What documentation such as consents do we need to have in place? Um, and how do we really start getting getting some patient flow back again? And, and, and thank you. And what about financially? Aside from operationally, what are you seeing with companies? What's the level of panic right now? I saw one of the major healthcare companies, um, Envision, I think, was looking at possibly filing for bankruptcy. G. Crew filed for bankruptcy. What's the level of panic? Is it is it not a level of panic? Has it moved out of that to new normal? And I know it's different for individual practice and centers versus portfolio companies or private equity funds. How are private equity funds looking at their portfolio companies? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, re I don't think the the panic is gone at all, and I think a lot of that is related to the fact that we just don't know what's going to happen. So I think there's certainly a, some optimism related to the fact that, you know, some states are allowing um, operations to, to restart. But I think we have no idea if there's going to be kind of a big second wave, new shutdowns. And so I don't, I don't know that, I guess the emotion isn't necessarily panic and that I think people move through panic into kind of more of a resilience and how do we deal with this. But in terms of do folks uh, feel like they're out of the uh, the darkest days, I don't know that that's the case. I think that it's more uh, put, putting your head down and, and doing what you can to stay afloat and be as smart as possible. Um, but I don't think anyone thinks that we're um, on the upswing. Are more of your conversations at the portfolio company level, meaning the platform company, or at the private equity fund level, in either way, are there differences in tone in either one? Um, no, I, I don't really think so. I mean, I think that um, everyone feels the same pressure and everyone, um, not to kind of crib from the signs all over this country, but it's kind of a we're in it together. And I think everyone has a, a very much a shared objective in terms of 
um, they they have everyone has equity ownership here, and it's a, a matter of needing to figure out a way forward and to keep this thing afloat. I think that there's very much a similar sentiment on both sides. Thank you. And Bart, let me turn to you and then to Christian. Bart, you work with a lot of private equity platforms. In some of those spaces, a lot of them are physician practice management spaces. Some are outside of that. There were starting to be concerned prior to the pandemic that some might have been overleveraged. What's the sort of sense now and what are you seeing and what are the what's going on with the portfolio companies? Yeah, thanks, Scott. We're, we're definitely seeing some of that on the more highly leveraged companies uh, that aren't performing as well. But I think it's a couple of factors. It's not just purely the leverage on them. It's also the sectors that are hardest hit. So, for example, we've got um, some uh, physician subsectors like dermatology, um, eye doctors, some of the, those types of specialties just aren't operating at all. So to the extent they had um, large amounts of leverage, I think they're feeling it more acutely, while some other sectors maybe haven't been hit as bad, so they could tolerate the leverage a little bit more. So I don't think it's just the leverage itself, but certainly when something like this happens and there's a significant decrease in their business, pretty much just across the board, it's definitely producing some distressed situations. And we've even seen that start to uh, come home to roost just over the last couple of weeks where there are practices or uh, PPM platforms that aren't doing as well that are looking for a lifeline or looking for other ways to uh, combine with bigger organizations that perhaps have a stronger balance sheet just to get through the woods on this. Um, so I think echoing colleagues comments earlier, I, I think that's right. People have sort of moved out of panic mode and into how do we build this for the long term and uh, conserve capital while at the same time being opportunistic. We, we've definitely seen people on the offensive looking for some opportunities where um, as long as the business itself has some sort of resilience, which most physician practices will due to at least some pent up demand after we're on the other side of this, that they're looking, they're kind of bargain hunting right now. So even if there is still a significant amount of leverage, they're working with lenders to try to reformulate financial covenants, try to extend terms to get a little bit of forgiveness in the short term. And then with the hope that, that in the future, although the equity valuations may be lower, at least the platform itself remains viable um, you know, on a little bit longer term horizon. Thank you. And that, that goes a lot towards the equity value left for the people at the platform level or the portfolio company level, i.e. the more they have to restructure debt, the more they have to take on new debt or have that debt converted into equity, the less equity left for the portfolio company owners. Bart, you work in a number of sectors. You're, you're sort of, people might not know this, the preeminent lawyer in the country when it comes to sort of dental roll-ups and dental practice transactions. Um, which six sectors are the most concerned about recovery? I mean, I, I know, like, for example, in a restaurant to take outside of healthcare at 50% capacity, the numbers just don't work for a lot of places with their current rents. With surgery centers, 50, 60% works, barely, but that, and that's where they see themselves getting back to in a hurry. What about dental? Do they expect dental to reopen again in, in the near future? Or how challenging is it to make a dental office work? In this new yeah, I, I, I tend to think it's more challenging than most of the other sectors that we've mentioned already, just because it's 
from what we've seen so far, and there, there may be some technological solutions coming for this, but it's much harder to do that from a teledentistry perspective, whereas primary care visits, some types of physician specialties, it's much easier to do telemedicine approaches, and it's much easier to do sort of limited schedules or you know, take other precautions that allow you to get back operationally more quickly. I think dentistry, just by its very nature, tends to be very much um, close quarters contact, so it's going to be really, really hard to get back to normal there. I, I think on the payment side, nobody has talked about reducing reimbursement or anything of that nature that would further exasperate the problem. And in fact, there, there was, you know, it was just a sentence or two in some of the HHS um, releases recently about some of these uh, future uh, tranches of the stimulus dollars being devoted specifically to dentists to give them some relief. So I think hopefully there's there's some relief coming on that front. But but I would I would tend to agree. I think dentistry is going to continue to be a little bit tougher. And also keeping in mind that that sector is still largely pretty fragmented as, as compared to a lot of the other um, physician specialties and, and some of the other practice management type um, businesses out there. You, you see a lot of smaller practices and one and in, in two dentist offices out there too. So it's going to be really hard for them. And in, in one other question, aside from sort of COVID-19 itself, are portfolio companies starting to look at rerunning revenue projections based on recessionary concerns? And how much of that are you seeing? I think they're trying to, um, but I, but I, I, I did, I've not seen I, I've not seen at least in the private company side uh, people doing that reliably. I think they're doing the best that they can, especially as their lenders are in particular asking for that information. Um, but I think I think it's sure it's baked in, but the amount of visibility just beyond the next two weeks, four weeks, six weeks is, is really hard. And, and it depends on geography too. Like if you look at places that are much harder hit like New York versus you know, Wyoming, uh, Nebraska, different places, it, it seems to be a function largely of population density more than anything else. Um, but then you look at states like Florida, which you know, so far they don't seem to be very hard hit and they are generally going back towards a more open environment. Um, if there is a phase two and how bad that is, I think that'll tell the rest of the story. Thank you very much. Christian, you work with a lot of independent sponsors as well as private equity funds. Many private equity funds invest in portfolio companies through different series, through different funds. So a portfolio company might be on fund four and they might be at the end of fund four. They start to think, well, who cares what happens with the rest of our portfolio companies in fund four? Let's just start working at deploying capital for our new fund. What's your sense of how private equity funds are looking at their existing investments? Are they looking at them as salvageable, still having great hope, or are they starting to give up on some of their portfolio investments? That's a great question. Uh, in order to be able to raise subsequent funds, performance has to be there, and investors want to know what, what is the status of the existing portfolio and uh, how are they marking their current investments. Um, for funds that are at the end of their they're, they're uh, or coming to to uh, the end of their fund and, and they're um, lacking dry powder, options can be limited, particularly with um, highly levered healthcare businesses that, you know, got 
high valuations and lots of leverage in in some cases you know, approaching double digits of, of leverage um, uh, those companies th those those owners uh, those private equity investors are looking for ways to uh, reduce the dilution as much as possible and so what they're trying to figure out now is who who is my friend in this market who can I go to um, there's a tremendous amount of capital out there and there's an increasing amount of uh, funds that provide flexible capital that that aren't strictly buyout or majority control focused um, structured equity funds for example you know Blue Mountain Capital in New York which transitioned away from uh, being a, uh, a hedge a family of hedge funds to, to making structured equity investments um, GCM Grosvenor, similar story, a diversified asset manager based in Chicago. Um, these these uh, groups, and there's many of them that have structured uh, structured equity, equity solutions that are also able to um, underwrite toward a, a, a lower return hurdle are sort of the, the best friends for many of these private equity funds that are over levered. Um, I, I'll just say across the across the category outside of healthcare, there there is a new crop of um, of uh, asset managers that will make fund level loans, uh, so non dilutive loans for struggling portfolio companies that need uh, assistance. And these fund level loans uh, are closed very quickly, often in in, in a matter of, of weeks instead of months but um, rely on underwriting the rest of the portfolio as the collateral, uh, as opposed to uh, underwriting a specific portfolio company that may be underperforming. Let me ask you a follow-up question. You've had over the last couple of years, the emergence of debt funds. There's the huge mega debt funds connected to the largest private equity funds, like the Blackstones of the world and the Apollos of the world. Um, and they seem to have so much dry powder that they could sort of help out their portfolio companies that have that are over levered and so forth um, and be able to manage it between their equity fund and their debt fund. Then you have these smaller debt funds that are 10 to 20 billion dollars, which seems like a big debt fund, but in today's world, it's not that big. What's the prognosis for some of these debt funds? Will these all be fine or are they going to have so many portfolio companies that are so over leveraged and in trouble? That they'll have much lower returns or trouble themselves. That's a great question, and, and we're fortunate at McGuire Woods to be uh, named this year uh, Banking Financial Law Firm of the Year, and, and we currently represent more lenders. I don't know if you know this, more lenders than any other law firm in the world uh, at the moment. Um, and we we do a lot of work with debt funds um, from very, from lo lower middle market uh, funds that that uh, have banks as Investors and and that you know make SB, SBIC type loans to very large credit funds like the ones that you described. Um, the answer to your question is it's really hard to know, right? It's just incredibly difficult. Uh, the the first phase that we saw uh, was cost reduction, furloughs, layoffs. Second was navigating the alphabet soup of government programs. Uh, now heavily levered companies who are evaluating liquidity uh, are trying to avoid having their equity taken away from them. 
um, and debt funds are in a position to to you know to to own equity through through debt, which is clearly not the path that, that they want to take. In industries where lots of leverage exists, it, it, it's it's all about the deal flow. You know, <laughs> how strong is your origination strategy? Yeah. yeah, let me do this. We've got we do have a um, a first question on the M and A side, and it goes to the valuation issue. Bart, I'll turn to you on this, and then again, I'll encourage people to ask questions. Bart, valuations of the dental sector. How will valuations be impacted in terms of the M and A environment there? Then I'll come back through all three of you on your projections on M and A. Bart. Yes, great, yeah, great question. Uh, and, and I've spoken to a number of the investment bankers in the space, and so obviously have a number of clients in the space, and spoken with a lot of investors in the space. And it's going to be a situation where there's a lot of um, disconnect. I think for the next six months, it's going to be a situation where some practices are going to be hit harder than others, depending on geography, depending on a variety of factors, and there are going to be bargains, there's going to be some discounts, but a lot of the things are going to be overpriced. I think the struggle for people who are in the middle of a process going into this or people who are looking towards a sale or a combination is how do you reprice those deals? Do you need to reprice those deals? If you're a buyer, how much credit do you give the seller for pre-COVID EBITDA? Uh, how much of that comes back? Is it 80%? Is it 90%? Is it 100%? And so I, I don't think there's a clear answer on it, but I think the issue is Yes, valuations will definitely be impacted to some degree. The extent to which that's true is really not clear. And I think it's going to be a function of how quickly they can get back to business, you know, what geography they're in, uh, how dependent they were on fee-for-service pay payments. I, I know there are some out there that are more dependent on capitated payments that may not have been hurt as badly, for example. The other thing to add is that uh, deal structures are going to potentially become more complex and things like, uh, and we're, we're already seeing this, the, the various ways that you can structure a transaction um, using earnouts and uh, seller debt. We've just seen a transaction using, um, uh, using a, a range of different seller notes, which is really interesting. Um, and, uh, and, and being able to understand what are the levers that we can pull. Uh, we're going to see a lot more of those, and investment bankers uh, are going to be challenged to understand these uh, these structures if they're not familiar with them. Um, and, uh, and, and sellers are certainly going to be challenged to understand uh, those structures, and, and it, there's gonna, it's going to become a more sophisticated M&A environment. Uh, where, you know, because of the uncertainty in this market, we, we you know, need greater, more downside protection through the structure. It, 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 and certainly, I think that is it, it, it really right and goes to Bart's point, I think, Christian, that a lot of these situations, there's really two parts of a price. What's the ongoing EBITDA and what's the multiple? And I think what I'm hearing is that ongoing EBITDA whether it's priced on the EBITDA pre-COVID-19 or some estimate of EBITDA post-COVID-19 or in the COVID-19 era are two very different things possibly. And obviously, if you're a seller, you want to be priced at your EBITDA as, as was expected to be without COVID-19. Uh, if you're a buyer and finding a deal, it's somewhere in between. Um, Howie, 
your expectations on sort of the same question, M&A over the next 12 to 18 months, 6 to 18 months, is there going to be a lot of M&A? Is it going to be muted? What are you sort of expecting in the next 6 to 18 months in terms of mergers and acquisitions? Yeah, so I mean, it's obviously super hard to know just because we don't quite know what's going to happen in the next 6 to 18 months in terms of COVID and the second wave and more shutdowns versus a kind of gradual return to normal. I think the things we do know are that funds do have a lot of dry powder that they need to deploy. Um, selling companies are not going to want to sell in a manner that's going to leave a lot of money on the table, uh, but some are going to be pushed into selling nonetheless because it's going to be too hard to survive without a sale. Um, and so I think, I mean, I predict there's going to be a swing from a market that was very seller-friendly to a market that's going to be much more buyer-friendly. I think terms are going to, um, the, the willingness of buyers to negotiate is going to decrease. Um, I think the biggest strategic transactions that aren't uh, driven by distress are likely going to be delayed by 6, 12, 18 months so that those uh, platforms can regain strength before transacting so as not to leave money on the table. But I think buyers, uh, platforms that are kind of doing a roll-up strategy are going to be eager to move forward with that strategy and pick up some good deals, uh, whether they're actually distressed assets or assets that maybe could survive. But um, it's it's a good time to buy and buy on some strong terms. And you're seeing some of that on the the stress side, funds looking to buy smaller businesses than they would have other bought or, or even mid-sized businesses, but that are in their financial distress, where the fund has enough money and thinks that in the long term the business might be fine. Are you starting to see some of that, and, and how aggressively so far? So I, I think we're more seeing active looking. Um, at least me personally in kind of my sphere, I'm not seeing um, a ton of execution there, but there's a ton of interest um, and people looking really hard and building the pipeline. I think that's going to be a lot of what we spend our time on in the next six, 12, 18 months is going to be executing on those. And, and Kristen, let me ask you a question. You've mentioned before that there's just this institutional need from private equity funds, particularly to put money to work. How long can the private equity funds sit without aggressively doing deals before they feel so much pressure to go and put money to work for a bunch of reasons? What's your sense of timing till there gets to be sort of such drive from the funds to buy? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, We've seen, I mean, over the course of different economic cycles, we've seen people who've successfully su- successfully raised new funds for a particular type of strategy that uh, something unforeseen like this, which which happened in, in 2008, 2009, it caused uh, managers to have to return capital to investors and um, kind of change their uh, outlooks. Uh, people aren't... Um, uh, it's not it's not something that anybody wants to do to return capital to investors but often um it's it's a better option than um putting out uh bad capital doing deals that uh you know are not are not going to be successful 
managers will return uh, will return capital, and life does go on for those people. In fact, uh, our independent sponsor initiative uh, has a tremendous number of, of people who are having very successful businesses despite having um, had funds that uh, that that for for some. Um, uh, secular reason outside of their uh, control impacted their ability to deploy capital. That said, people are going to be focusing heavily on, on deploying capital, looking for deal flow. That's one of the things that I try to do and, and be a source of knowledge about what is the what is the um, state of the art with respect to sourcing deals and and uh, and finding opportunities. Thank you, and Bart and, and maybe Holly. Let me ask you this question. Portfolio companies of PE funds, have they been able to take advantage of some of these lending programs or some of these lending programs prohibited because of the affiliate numbers, the 500 rules and how it works? Uh, somebody specifically asked about the Main Street lending program. Howie or Bart, can either of you address that? Yeah, I'm happy to take it. Um, and I'm sure Holly has some Things to add to. We've both been neck deep in this this world for the last month or so. Um, you're exactly right. There's some pretty complicated uh, what are called affiliation rules associated with the SBA loan program, of which the Paycheck Protection Program is a part. Um, and, and it really depends on how the business is structured and how you count the total number of employees. For purposes of the PVP loans, you have to have under 500 employees, and then there's also a separate size uh, test. That, that you might be able to apply. Um, but yeah, I think, yeah, some of them um, have been able to take advantage of programs. I'd say the majority have not. Uh, and the one big uh, exception is if you had any kind of SBA, SBIC funding prior to this program being introduced, you are eligible to participate, or at least you don't have to um, comply with the ordinary affiliation rules. But Holly, I'm sure you got other things you, you can add. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that, um, as Bart mentioned, there's been the, probably not a huge amount of uh, portfolio companies that have availed themselves, but I think um, one of the interesting complexities is when uh, funds are targeting um, deals um, is figuring out what the uh, targets have been able to avail themselves of and how do they deal with that as part of the transaction. So uh, in terms of the PPP loans, advanced payments, grants, there's all kinds of ways that healthcare businesses may have availed themselves of COVID-related government programs and that's going to add a whole other level of complexity into transactions as uh, working through things like working capital and, and the forgiveness and um, exactly what to do with these things. Thank you. Let me ask you another audience question. Bart, I, I want to give you a, a first chance to, to to plug in on the M&A environment. Do you expect multiples to be reduced over the next 12 to 18 months because of the lending environment? And we, we were in a frenzied world the last few years of really being a seller-friendly environment. Do you expect multiples to be lower the next 12 to 18 months? And, and do you expect a pacing of acquisitions to pick up or stay slow or any sense of that? I think multiples come down a little bit. I think they were getting pretty frothy, pretty frothy in some subsectors, um, especially at scale. Some of the bigger acquisitions that were real sizable platforms were getting, were getting pretty high evaluations in terms of just multiples of EBITDA. Um, so I, I do think those come down to earth a little bit, but but not a ton. I, I do think. 
I do think debt will continue to be relatively available and rel relatively affordable just with the amount of dollars that are being pumped into the economy by the Fed. I, I just feel like there'll be some buoyancy there. And, and there's enough, as you said earlier, dry powder on the sidelines that the equity funds, maybe the equity components of these deals become more significant and maybe that depresses the multiples somewhat. Uh, maybe people use less debt, but it, I think it'll still be generally available. And second, on, on just the pace of deals, I, I do think deal pace is going to pick up considerably in the third and fourth quarter. I think there are going to be a lot of distressed opportunities out there. And I think people are going to uh, swoop in and, and on the seller side, people who are kind of sitting on the sidelines and, and, and doing okay are now under a ton of stress and a ton of pressure to get a deal done or to join with a bigger organization. Um, and then the ones that already had a ton of leverage, I think you're, you're right. I think those are going to be uh, some more interesting cases as well. Thank you. And let me come back to Christian on a question we had. The question is on interest rates on seller notes. Any sense of where these are going to be? Are these going to be like the typical Visa and MasterCard where they don't get worse than 18%, but they're very high interest rates? What's the sense of the interest rates on some of these seller notes that you're talking about when sellers take back notes and part of deals? Thank you. There's very there's a million ways to structure uh, these these seller notes, and uh, it's, but what we see commonly is that the, the, the seller debt is not priced uh, more expensively than than um, than even the, the junior debt in a transaction in, in deals where there's both senior and mezzanine. So on an absolute basis, I think we we see. Uh, we, we see uh, pricing between six and eight percent on average, uh, and that will likely continue. Um, it's the the goal it, when buying a company is not to make it onerous uh, for the um, for the buyer to consummate the transaction, and um, and hopefully there's a partnership struck between a uh, willing seller who believes in the vision that the um, buyer has for the future of the company and that the, the seller therefore uh, you know wants to be treated fairly but doesn't necessarily need to um, is not looking to get rich off of uh, off of the seller note thank you very much we've just got about five minutes left i want to encourage anyone if you have a question to dial it in or to text it in um, or to um just text me 312-399-0774 um, i'll ask e each one of you um to weigh in on 30 second prediction on recovery do we get back to sort of a 60% recovery for portfolio companies, 100% return for portfolio companies. Uh, what's your sense of what uh, business ramps back up to by the end of the year? Bart, what do you see in the sectors you're working? By the end of the year, I think the hardest hit ones will get back to, call it 75%. Um, I think the... I'm more optimistic of the specialties that haven't uh, experienced quite the same impact um, as, as dental and some of the other sectors um, like Alto, Alto. So I, I think some of the other specialties, you'll be closer to, you know, over 75%. I don't think they'll be back to normal. Um, I think we'll be waiting until 
mid next year before you get back to that point to truly be kind of back to back to even. In Holly, your prediction. I think I'm a little more negative. Uh, unfortunately, I, I think that some of the hardest hit ones, um, I think they'll be lucky to finish the year at 50% of um, target. Um, I think for the specialties who are able to kind of get back to work and who can kind of push through more volume, I think they'll probably finish, uh, if we're lucky, at kind of 75 to 80% for the year. Um, Let me ask you a question, not so much for the year, but what does the run rate look like in September, October? For example, if you get to September, October, are they running at 75 to 80% of what they were running at pre-COVID? I just don't know where, I think it totally depends on whether or not we're in a, another wave of this. I think, I think since my, from my reading, and again, I'm not a doctor or a scientist, but I don't think we'll have a vaccine by then. So I don't think from a volume perspective, it's going to be very easy to be back at 100%. I think that um, by kind of spreading things out and employing social distancing, it'll be some lower percent. But the bigger question is, will we be in another wave where it's going to be a lot less than that, or where COVID positive cases are going to kind of shut things down uh, on and off. And so I think that's the part that's really hard to forecast. I think if we're able to just slowly reopen and we're not hit by another wave, then I think, you know, yeah, we can hopefully be back at, you know, 80% or so um, by the end of the year. It's just really dependent on, I think, the state of the the, uh, virus. Thank you very much. Kristen, I'm going to ask you one other question that came in from one of our uh, participants. And, and this is a question. If you have a company that performed well during this COVID crisis, it's one of these companies that did well, would there be a particular premium on that company because they did so well during COVID-19? That's a great question. Right now, the deals that are closing are the ones, at least the conjecture among uh, the colleagues in our private equity group is that, and, and many of our clients is that the deals that have been closing are the ones that have not had a material adverse change as a result of COVID. In, in healthcare, telehealth companies obviously are doing uh, great right now. We just closed a deal for a client that um, helps with uh, with um, at home learning through through uh, through digital and internet means. Um, whether that whether that equates to a big premium in the future is a tough call. Um, I think it's it's inevitable that some companies will do well in situations like this, and some companies will be severely impacted. Um, historically, recession resistant businesses are do, do command a very very significant premium. So, for, think companies that that uh, provide services to customers that are on uh, under long-term contracts where those but, contracts but, are yeah go ahead. Let, let me ask you a question because the, the um and I, I we've got to wrap up in a second those premiums though so it's not to misunderstand if pre-covid you had these elevated multiples in the 12 to 14 range you know and once in a while they'd be higher on a on a company that's really just a crazy growth company because it's so clear that the multiple is really not 12 to 14. It's lower because the company's in such a growth phase. Well, with these companies, they're for sure going to get a premium compared to the rest of the market, but that premium might not be a pre-COVID multiple. Christian, is that a fair statement? I don't think so. I think that uh, companies that 
continue to uh, perform well are going to be able to command uh, continuing high high premiums. And the the one of the biggest drivers for that is that investment funds have been raised targeting lower returns. Uh, and and by in so doing, they're able to to pay higher multiples. So so those firms are still out there. Many of them are our clients. Uh, that presents a very significant uh, uh, amount of competition in the marketplace. So we're, we're going to continue seeing uh, a strong appetite for for high quality assets. So if you performed well through this COVID recession challenge problem, you're likely to still command just great multiples. I'm saying yes, and and I, I definitely hear uh, Holly and and Bart with their their measured re responses, which I think are very appropriate. Uh, I'm I'm presenting more optimistic case about valuations. No, no, and I don't think they disagree on companies, particularly this question around recession-resistant companies who have proven to be recession-resistant. Resistant. In any event, I, I want to thank all of our panelists for joining us. Um, obviously, if any time you're interested in being a participant in a webinar or joining a webinar or joining a, a Becker Group podcast or on the separate side of Becker's Healthcare podcast, let us know. If you need help from McGuire Woods, you've got three great panelists here, Bart Walker, Holly Buckley, Christian Berger. Just a great pleasure to visit with all three of you today. Thank you, uh, Bart, Holly, and Kristen. You were fantastic, as always. Thank you very much.